0: Welcome to Continuing the Conversation. I'm Carl Lamuzu. And I'm Glenn Collins. Fost Church is a community creating space for everyone to find hope, beauty, and purpose in the
1: story of Jesus. Continuing the Conversation is one of the ways that we are trying to create space for an expanded dialogue and interactions based on the conversations we're having at Fost Church. This week we're privileged as Kurt led us through exploring the story of Balaam. It is
0: a wild story full of angelic assassins talking donkeys and poor execution but under all of the fantasy literature level weirdness, some deeper themes are being explored that force us to look at how we create villains in the stories around us. But before we get started, I'd like to invite Kurt to be able to give a few words to be able to introduce
2: himself. Hey guys, I'm Kurt. Um, Been hanging around here for a while now. What I found interesting about this whole series is just the Old Testament is a place I've stayed away from for a long time. And this story is probably one of the reasons Um, just so much stuff going on there. And it was really tough for me to actually work through this process because there's so many things that challenged my thinking, challenged my beliefs. Um, But there were so many gems hidden in there as well. So it's been a really neat experience to kind of walk through some of these stories that give me problems.
1: So Kurt, man, I'm glad that you're able to jump on the, on the podcast with us this week as we continue the conversation. Mm So, well, Before we jump into the whole head, heart, hands, question stuff, I just want to kind of throw it out there to you guys to see if you had any thoughts um, as we explore Balaam and uh, the Heaven's Worth Assassin kind of that story. just wanted to see if you guys had any thoughts on that.
0: I know what Kurt brought out for me that made it impactful was just the ridiculousness of the story. Because I know being raised around the story, sometimes when you hear a story so often, it doesn't seem strange anymore. It's just like, oh yeah, of course, a donkey talk. But as we walk through and the ridiculousness of an angel who can't seem to get off the path, trying to poke him with a sword, a donkey sling for its life and being like, no master, I'm just protecting you. And you have the only person who can't see is the seer, the prophet. And then everyone who retells the story is like, oh, he was a jerk. And so that, that outlandish level of it, as we actually expose that, it made it much more interesting to dialogue and talk about cause like, oh no, no, there's there's a reason why it's outlandish. There's a reason why we can pull these parts which made it very interesting when he showed how every use of the outlandish story was used to defame a certain group afterwards. And so that use of exaggeration was um, really powerful for me.
1: No, that's awesome, man. Yeah, just sort of like, just what you're saying about like that, that use of exaggeration and the way that you framed it. It, it was—I don't know why—but it made me think of the movie *Honey, I Shrunk the Kids*. It was like from like the I think late '80s, and uh, basically I pictured like like Balaam and his donkey trying to like escape on a foosball table. And the reason why the angel couldn't get off the path was because he was stuck on the pole, right? Like it's like now, oh, it makes sense now. That's why he can't get off the path, right? And so. It's just, it's just that, 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 like, I felt like I needed to share that visualization that popped in my head as you were sharing what you were sharing, man, because that's what comes to mind as I think about Balaam and the, and, you know, Heaven's Worst, Worst Assassin is actually a foosball table. That's what it is.
2: <laughs> How about you, Kurt, man? Uh, any, any thoughts? One of the things that really stuck with me a lot, along with all of the, the really weird stuff where, like Glenn mentioned, you know, the, the talking donkey almost becomes the most normal part of the story. Um, just the way God interacts with Balaam. And you know, that he's, he's kind of moving with Balaam and accommodating in some extent, but he's also coming against them pretty hard um, at different times. But uh, you know, the interesting thing to me was that there's a relationship here. So God is, is working with Balaam. He's not just saying, this is how it's gonna be. That's it and that's all. Um, he's actually kind of moving with Balaam and giving him some leeway in what happens. So it's, it's not just a completely one-sided thing.
0: Yeah, I'm curious with that, because um, sometimes when you see it in one story and you step into other stories, you start noticing the pattern that you never saw until the first time it was exposed to you. Have you started trying to go through some of the Old Testament literature to see um, what other stories have you held at a distance because you haven't yet found that twist in it?
2: That's a good question, because two conversations I got involved with actually yesterday, one and one today. Um, one was with a cousin of mine who commented on, she watched the YouTube presentation, and she questioned the assassin angel part of it. And so we kind of talked about that in a little bit. And she likened it to the story of Moses with Zipporah, and, which is another one. I've got to go back and read it because I'm, I'm, I'm sort of familiar with the story, but not really but it seems like it's another one of these. It's the where whole God,
1: foreskin one, the whole foreskin
2: one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some weirdness there. God wants Moses dead. pour talks him out of it. Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> there's some weirdness there. Today, a guy brought up uh, Ezekiel asking, you know, for a help of, you know, what the heck does this book mean? And uh, I went back and I read the one passage he referred to, and I just kind of put my Bible away and kept my mouth shut. Um <laughs> so yeah gotta spend more time in some of these stories
0: oh that story you mentioned of um moses is amazing because the way the story uh is paced she would almost have to be circumcising her young son who would be toddler range by this point so thinking like an 80 pound kid you're trying to pick up circumcise while running to throw a dude i'm american i see that look <laughs> the car. Our, our kids are hefty <laughs> Um, throwing, throwing the circumcised foreskin at the guy who's just kind of walking away, not paying attention. I mean, that's
1: hey, y'all have a golden like. Is it Golden Corral? Is, isn't isn't that the or Cracker Barrel or whatever? Y'all got like Both of a Those are pass. actually good. We <laughs> got like the season <laughs> pass for your kids, man. Because eighty pounds, holy crap! <laughs> I think I was fifteen by the time I got that big.
0: <laughs> yes sir now but um yeah th- those wild and out stories is kind of for me it always caused a, almost a sense of humility because before i always thought of scripture as something you could present and if you had the right argumentation it was rational it was sensible it was provable and you're like no we're good but you get into some of these stories and you're like okay, I'm not sure how to prove this one or even how to defend it, much less justify it. It's like, yeah,
2: that happened. Yeah. One comment I got today as well from another friend of mine with this little discussion about, um, the talking, we're not doing about the angel assassin. And it kind of happened on my Facebook feed and another friend of mine chimes in at one point, he goes, Hey, you know, the flying spaghetti monster never said anything that ridiculous, <laughs> but this is, is kind of his go-to deity, is, is the flying spaghetti monster. Um, you wear a strainer on your head to show allegiance. Um, <laughs> I remember that one. But, it, <laughs> but it, he showed the point, though.
0: Um, when we try to present ourselves as, usually it's about the 18th century rationalist uh, Christianity, um, we lose some of the actual vitality of the text, because then it's easy <coughs> to, to dismiss and be like, the spaghetti monster, why? because we think of it as a flat story, not one prone to exaggeration, juxtaposition, and not one that was created by storytellers. We think of it as created by historians as opposed to storytellers. And historian is measured by a different metric than the storyteller that gives life to a community.
1: Yeah, that's, I think that's a great point that you said, Glenn, but even I would say, when we say his, like historians measure by a different metric, I would even say like, that's, that, that's a modern era definition of historian because historians like in one sense it is actually meant to be like like when you read the gospels whatever like they're historians but they have a very different need to you know a very different need that they're trying to accomplish or goal they're trying to accomplish when they're telling when they're telling history and that history actually has nothing to do with like facts and figures and and like did it happen on a certain timeline it's actually like well the timeline's all jumbled all over the place and here's my Kind of philosophical theological point that i'm trying to make or like you've said said before does it really matter if the donkey
0: talked does that change something or is the point as kurt um alluded to that god talked to balaam who was a prophet and a priest of a different people not connected to israel at all is so is the point that we get lost in the fantastical of donkey speech um or the actual transgressing
1: boundaries by divine action moving towards outside people. Well, so with that, I think it's a great time that we transition into the head, heart, hands questions. Glenn, why don't you uh, just kind of give us a quick explanation about head, heart, hands, and then we'll jump into that.
0: So every week we try to walk through three levels of question asking, because each question tries to give us an ability to live out a new story. The head questions are conceptual. They're about the way we think, the way we structure. The heart questions are experiential. It's how we respond, how we interact, the guttural response you have when you get triggered, when you hear a story or you get brought into something, we get to pause and sit in that tension. Then the hands question is how we make something tangible. So we move from the conception to the experience of, to trying to move out and make real. So this week for the head question, in this story, God's mind seems to change a couple of times. God sends an angel, assassin angel to take care of Balaam. God also speaks directly to Balaam, who is not part of God's chosen people. How does this story challenge your image
2: of God or your expectations of how God operates? I guess for me, the, what I really struck me as I was thinking about this, is start to think of different people in my life. You know, I shared one story last week about some friends from Medicine Hat Um, people who aren't part of our faith and yet who do the things that we should be doing. Um, another friend of mine from Vancouver does just an incredible amount of work with at-risk youth. And this guy gives a crazy amount of time, a crazy amount of money to this program, um, and yet it's not done from any kind of a, you know, a spiritual standpoint, trying to earn points with a with a deity or any of that kind of stuff. It's just done because something in him says, this is what we need to do. And, uh, you know, I worked with him for a couple of years on this program and yeah, it was everything he did on it was not a selfish motive. It's not done to get promoted at work or to get this and that. It's just, you know, he saw a need and he stepped up to fill it. So, it's made me a lot more aware of different people in my life who are doing the things that we should be doing. Um, you know, there's so many ways to get involved in the work that God's trying to do. And a lot of it's happening outside of our church walls. And we're just so many, for me, I was just completely unaware of it.
1: No, that's good, man. That's good. I think like probably in a, in a, in a really similar way. Um, like, like I think this story and, and just kind of like, like the th- different things that are happening in the story, uh, push on some different things that I've reflected on in my in my own life. But I think even just like diving into the actual story in and of itself, Glenn, I think, and you alluded to this before, was this like that notion of how we read the story, right? Like we read the story and we're so used to reading the story that like things that are meant to actually make us pause and be like, what? Um, become normal to us. Right. It's like, it's like, okay, we watched Shrek one too many times. And so a talking donkey. Yep. Good to go. and And we're okay with it. But, when it comes to, and well, an outsider um, actually speaks intimately with God. Well, no, 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 that part's, uh, that, that, that's like hyperbole. That's not what it means at all. That's not what it could, that, that, you know, that guy, I mean, all of a sudden we start to demonize, we start, we start to extrapolate, we start to add to the story. Right, like we're okay with the fantastical parts, but we're not okay with the parts that would actually say, like in our, in our day and age, even now, like it's like, like when I look around me, who are the outsiders that can speak on behalf of God to me, right? Like, like that, that's the part that I'm like, nah, bro, that isn't in the Bible actually. That's, that's, that's the best stuff part. Like, and so reading that story really highlighted that part of God to me is that it's almost a must that we continually kind of scan the horizon to say, where is God already present? Where's God already speaking? What are the stories that God is already, you know, speaking through in a sense that we need to listen to learn from and, Find a way to actually allow them to, to bless us because I, I would say like in this story, the one thing that you know Balaam does when you actually if you actually when we dive into the story he begins to bless like he actually says blessings over Israel, right? And so if they were actually able to hear the story, they probably instead of instead of trying to vilify him, vilify him and demonize him, um, they'd be like, well, let's let's listen to what this brother said. I like that part right there. You know, it's good for us. And instead of, instead of taking instead of actually speaking listening to the blessing all they could see was a threat because this person shouldn't be able to speak for god to us
0: well actually goes in the way we use them like you bring up a real good point is that the fact of when we say the story at least the way i always heard people say is like if god could speak through a donkey god could use you too it's tongue-in-cheek obviously but it's a way to eliminate balaam from the story um and i'd say uh you and i got to experience something to where we had this sort of experience and we're told, how are we going to convert the person? When we, we met the gentleman that, that was a Baha'i missionary. Now it's a different tradition. They have a different, they see Jesus, but they see Jesus as an incarnation and a reincarnation of an enlightened one that's happened multiple times. But when we were handing out tracts and inviting people to a church and just like saying, Hey, we're doing an event. he goes, Oh, this is amazing. You guys are building a community, Um, let's do lunch. He sat down and goes, so tell me what good things are you doing in this community? And it took us aback. He said he gave up a job security and everything because he felt God called him to come and be a source of blessing for the children there. So he was tutoring, doing after school programs. He was helping run different um, aid programs. He was staying in the middle of an impoverished area Just because he said, God said that we are supposed to be a blessing. And when we were dealing with an agency who was talking about um, funding us for church planning, we told them about it. They're like, oh, so you told him he's going to hell. Because if you always have to see Balaam as a threat, a person doing a good work can only mean that our works aren't good enough. And we, um, Carl and I had a hard time with it. We actually want to celebrate the fact that he gave up so much to sit with the people, we want a point where we see God already in the story. We want to say, no, Balaam actually knew the name of God, actually knew that the tribal name Yahweh, not just a generic name of deity, not Baal, not Elohim, actually the official name, rather than title and rank. And in these moments, our mind can get widened a little bit. And like I said, that, that shows how we see the story as threatening when we still tell it and we never focus on if God could speak to Balaam, who was not the right people, not the right group, God could also use all of us. We say if God could use the donkey and we erase Balaam from the story, the one thing that can threaten us.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think it reminds me of, you know, and it's one of my favorites. I go to it a lot, but you know, like the, the CS Lewis last battle stuff, right? Like, um, where you have, I, I'm always blank on the character's name because it's been a, year, a few years now since I've read the I've read the book last. But the, the one character who is represented by the the bad guys, just keep it simple, the bad guys. Um, and he's sitting there, pond like like sitting down, and and Aslan comes up and talks to him. It's like, well, like evil can't be done in my name, you know, you know what I mean. So, so that's already done in the name of of Tash, and any any good can't be done in the name of evil. So therefore, it's done in my it's done in my name, and, and there's this kind of rewriting of. Like, like, what does it actually mean to be the good guys in a sense, or what does it actually mean to follow God, like based based on that? And I think this story, to me, highlights that because if, at the end of the day, um, like Balaam doesn't walk out of the story with any blood on his hands, right? It's it's the Israelites that are credited a few chapters later, and we killed Balaam, <laughs> right? Like that that that's how they close off the stuff. Like there's no there's no notion of Balaam causing any sense of violence in the in the mix of this, but it's like any voice that speaks from outside of us, that that's such a threat that we have to cut it off. Um, and I and I and I have a hard time, like, like 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 I guess with using that metric. but the reason I brought up the story was I have a hard time when I read those stories. Um, well, people are like, well, it's God's word. I gotta just I gotta just hold on to it, right? And it's like, well, no. I think we're actually supposed to read it as nuanced and layered, and say, where are the places? that we kind of insert ourselves into the story and we try to do evil in the name of God in a sense but we refuse to accept the blessing that is done maybe out, uh, from a, from an outside perspective in a sense you you know you know what i mean and i and i think we're actually meant to read that as juxtaposition and i believe the, i believe like the i'd actually say the authorial intent the reason why those stories are are played that way the reason why the authors leave Yahweh's name on the on the on the tongue of Balaam is to actually get people to read it and be like wait a minute what right like there there's there's an intimacy there that 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 the author's intent i think it's intentional saying like i want to mess with your head a little bit i want you to have to process this insiders and outsiders it looks different
2: yeah,
0: and and with that structure it also i think challenges us to rather than name difference and that we celebrate virtue wherever we find it not virtue if but just saying your gracious act, your loving act, when you heard from God and you showed wisdom in this, like you said, um, with the last battle, that the, the prophetic moment of that story is it says every good virtuous thing you did, you didn't realize you were serving God. And we could, I would say that if we looked at this with that lens and put Balaam's name back in the story we might be encouraged by looking outside of ourselves, our community, our tribe, our people, even our faith at times, and say, "Where do we see people hearing God?"
2: So, Glenn, I'll pick your brain a little bit for see how, how good your memory is. I came across something. It was a couple of years ago, and I don't remember where it was. I know it's New Testament. I, for some reason, Peter is popping into my head, but I could be wrong. It kind of says exactly what you were just saying—that there's people that are completely unaware of God in their life. And yet they're doing the things they should be doing. And one day it's going to be revealed that it was God working through them the entire time. I'm at a loss for exactly where it was. But I remember just, it was one of these times when I was reading this and I just stopped and went, wow, that is just absolutely amazing. And I, but it just kind of popped in my head now. So I'll have to try to dig up the re- reference. I was hoping maybe, you know, with all your wisdom, it would be right there. Yeah, you're, you're uh, <laughs> trying
0: to tap a dry well. Um. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm, I'm curious, with, with that sense of, of running into that statement, even in the New Testament, because sometimes we think crazy stories are Old Testament material, and New Testament just all new and good and rational. Um, when you find that there, what did it do to you? Because I know you've been processing for a while what to do with our faith, and what do we do with um, the kind of ebbs and flows, the undulation that it is trying to come together in faith. I know
2: in this particular one, I came across it, that- it was one of those moments that, that really stopped me dead in my tracks. Um, because having grown up, I've been going to church since I was an infant. I grew up, my dad was a reverend. Um, you know, I've spent, you know, 50 some odd years of my life where, you know, basically church was always a huge part of it. Um, so growing up, I was like firmly solved in the belief that you know, within our narrow confines of of this is what we believe and, you know, everyone else is on the outside. That's changed a lot over the last number of years. So passages like this, and I was willing to call it with, you know, all of our whatever's 4,000 some odd denominations, you know, yeah, we're all good, you know, like to me, that was always kind of one faith, even though we have different stuff. But when it came to some of the other guys on the fringes, where, yeah, I would just write off the wisdom so many times because it just, they weren't part of us. Um, especially not Is like a lot of my friends now who, they're agnostics or they're atheists or they're whatevers. Um, and yet you see them doing this stuff and then I come across a passage that says, you know, they're doing my work. And one day it's going to reveal that it was me working through them. Um, I got to take that seriously. And look at them and go, wow, they don't acknowledge it. They don't believe it. But, you know, this is what's happening.
0: Well, I imagine it probably also be a point of uh, comfort now that you're uh, yeah. moving through some of your own development. So, in the process, and you found yourself somewhat fringe. And before yeah. you found yourself completely on the fringe, you to wrestle with God is also there. I'll tell
2: you a cool story. When this whole thing started for me, um, I was involved in church and loving it. It was, I was deeply involved in stuff. Um, It was a great place. What I found myself doing though is being so, so busy um, doing stuff between leading small Bible study groups, being on leadership, being doing this, that, the other stuff. And I was just, you know, foot to the floor and go constantly. And like you said, you know, I started to question a couple of things, and with a few people—not not, not everybody—but with a few people, I found myself on the fringes very, very quickly. Um, I'm not a visions guy. I'm a, I'm, you know, I'm a good Mennonite boy. Um, you know, pretty conservative for the most part. But I got this really weird thing that actually happened to me, which is only supposed to happen to charismatics, not to it's good Mennonites. But um, <laughs> I got a vision though of it on this hamster wheel and like our whole church group was on this wheel and we were all just running hard, hard, hard. And everything we were trying to achieve was right in front of us. But we were suspended above it on this little wheel. We didn't ever actually touch it. We couldn't feel it. Um, and we compensated by running harder because you're thinking it's right there. right, And... I had just kind of a picture of myself just kind of going, oh, I'm stepping off. I'm done with this. And I stepped off the side of the wheel and went, wow, I'm standing on the grass and wandering around and all of a sudden seeing all of the things that we were trying to achieve and all the things that God was doing. All of a sudden, boom, I'm right in the middle of it. And I'm actually able to participate in it and see it feel it and touch it. Um, really, really weird experience. But, yeah, that's just one of the things that's kind of stuck with me. And in that setting is where I found, you know, so many other voices that have so much to contribute to my spiritual growth, to our, the work that we do with people. Um, that's really, really been amazing. And I look back and, you know, some of my friends are still on that wheel and they're still running and huffing and puffing. and Yeah. But it's a, it's a cool place when you can step off that wheel and just enjoy what God's actually trying to do. Nice. Yeah, that's a beautiful, that's a, that's a, that's a beautiful story and, and even
1: image, and especially for a, for a Mennonite, for a Mennonite brother, you know what I mean, having that image <laughs> pop up, it, it, it's probably one of those moments that has punctuated um, the way that you, you you see yourself engaged within the body of Christ. Dude.
0: Right? Mm-hmm. So, but you know, because he's Mennonite, he still ran on that wheel for about three more weeks saying I have to do
1: my due diligence. Oh yeah, Look, you, you gotta, you gotta, form, you, you gotta form a committee before you get off. That's right. And eh? well, that's hard to do when everyone's out of breath from running. Yeah, that's right. Eh? Uh, but yeah, man, like me and Glenn shouldn't be making fun of uh, Mennonites, we're charismatic and there's uh, if, if anybody should get made fun of it's us, so. Yes. we uh, make fun of you guys all the time, it's okay. <laughs> I, was like,
0: um, I spent the last four years working in a Mennonite community and I have to say, they're amazing. But even they recognize their own ability to have a committee about a committee about a committee about a
1: committee. Yeah, but I feel like it's like using the N-word, Glenn. Like, (laughs) it's like, you can hang out with black folks, it doesn't mean you can say it, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, because they told me that when I was trying to get something done, they're like,
0: oh, Glenn, you weren't raised Mennonite, were you? I was like, no, like, we'll get this done in like the next five to six
1: months. Like, but this could be a one-week project. See, but if you took, see, but again, if you did it in one week, what are you going to do for the rest of that time? You know what I'm
2: saying? <laughs> <laughs> you got to stretch yeah, it thing out. Thing is, what you, what you're forgetting too is that every time we get together, we have food. Oh no, I don't forget that. So, it, right? Right? So you you like, want to have the committee because if you can do it in six weeks instead of two, you get four extra rounds of food. Exactly. Uh, and and exactly. there's nothing like
0: Mennonite soup lines. I don't know what yeah. it is about Mennonites and making soup, but
2: Ooh. That's love. So, one of the themes that I that I saw in here as well, and it, it kind of shows up when you go like later in the scripture, talking about Balaam. Carl said at one point, you know, and later on, it's like, he killed Balaam. Um, the farther into history you go, like, afterwards, Balaam seems to become worse and worse and worse guy. Um, you know, until the story that follows this one of the donkey is where the Israelite man looking at the Moabite women and going, "Ooh, they're pretty hot." Um, and a whole bunch of them end up involved in affairs with with the Moabite women and it's a pretty sordid thing. And the story that follows based on that God ends up killing 24,000 Israelite men, which I mean like I said, it's just another one that maybe what? Um, but what's interesting though is in the story when it happens, God, God says the men you guys are responsible. 24,000 a year are going to die. As that story gets retold down history, depending on who's writing it, Balaam becomes, when Balaam enticed the Israelite men to sin with the women, um, other stories talk about the Moabite, the Moabite women mm-hmm. used Balaam as the mediator to entice the men to sin. But the writers down the road blame either Balaam or they blame the women. For this, but it's pretty clear in the original story, God puts the blame squarely on the man. So it kind of got me thinking on the the thoughts too about a lot of the villainizing. Like when it comes to dealing with our own issues, our own problems, the things that we do, you know, it's it's really easy to look at the other guy and say, "Well, you know, Adam did it. It's the woman you gave me. You know, that's why I said it wasn't. Oh shoot, sorry, God, I did this, right?" we do it so well, like we deflect onto somebody else, we screw up. And as we retell the story, it slowly becomes someone else's fault where we were left in a position where we didn't really have a choice. We had to do what we did. Um, so yeah, that was just kind of a side note to the whole thing, but.
0: Well, actually you bring a really important thing there for all communities. Usually the act of, um, othering, demonizing, um, creating terrible narratives happen when you don't have to tell your own story. So the more that somebody else defines your story, often the the more the idiosyncrasies get blamed on you. What could have been happenstance or just part of culture or um, uncontrollable events become your fault. And you see that all the time in social narratives around countries. Given communities will be scandalized, marginalized, ignored because somebody else is telling their story.
1: Mm -hmm. Definitely. And I think that's why I like the idea of like self-definition and self-determined, like, like 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 self-determination, um, are are two really important concepts when it comes to talking with with other folks, allowing them to actually define themselves um, and and allow them to speak for themselves. Because I think like we tend to, um, lack of a better way to say it, man's plane, but um, well, in some cases, but like just privilege, uh, we, we we step over everybody else because well, we're we're we're, we're Western, we're I'm Canadian. You're American. Mm-hmm. Um, our country, are, we're better. Like you know, you know, you know, so we tend to have this this notion and look down upon everybody else, and and define them for themselves instead of allowing them to define themselves. It's the it's reason why, like if you, you know, on, on late night television, I, honestly, I, don't, I don't watch television too much anymore, but when I was a kid, you'd always have like the, like what, what I call poverty porn pouring out over your television, um, you know, African babies with swollen bellies. And like, if you ask anybody in Canada or America, like, well, what's Africa like? Oh, it's poor. And it's like, well, you ask Africans, they'd be like, well, part of Africa. Like what do you mean? Mm-hmm. Like Africa has a hundred something countries in it. Like what are you talking about, <laughs> right? Like it's it's such a diverse thing that we that you got to create space for self self definition, otherwise we end up thinking through the language of, of privilege, which then usually turns other people into voyeuristic appetites for us to actually consume. Well,
0: also with that voyeurism. The same things what you guys just pointed out like they're able to project onto balaam and their stories that aren't in the first story it allows you to blind yourself to your own shortcomings because when you put it onto the other somebody else tells you tell somebody else's story and say it's their fault you can often like with the poverty point you're talking about how many of those do you see about all the people dying of hunger in america or in canada how often do you have in in the hands of an angel playing in the soft ballad. Um, it's actually become a joke since America has done so well with COVID. Um, I forget who's the singer Sarah, Sarah McLaughlin. Sarah McLaughlin. Yeah. She actually put out a tweet that said, Hey, if any charities need this for America, you have my permission. Yeah. Um, exactly. And it said for 20 cents, you could feed a hungry American, but we never see that because we train ourselves to see the, continent of africa not the 20 countries of africa um as this place that is charity so we only show the parts that need help and for our side we're like oh yeah let's look at the up and coming parts of la let's not look at the um dangerous parts. let's look at the good the good high rides of houston not the montrose district
1: um and, and we're the Monstros like, oh, yeah, yeah that was that's, gentrified, bro. Huh? Swear, that's, that's, that's The Monstros district is uh, gentrified, man. It's hip and happening now, as, as, oh, as all bro, people bro right. the people say. Bro, last time I was there was in
0: 2002. So it's been a while.
1: Okay. Yeah, but on a, on, a, on, a, on a side, on a different note, man, we should probably transition to the hard question because we're going down another tangent that actually has nothing to do with what the actual theme of this podcast is. Yeah, huh. So we they are marginalized continue- Balaam by
0: erasing him from the story in order to exalt the donkey because they preferred weird donkey porn over a true prophet. And I took that directly from the horse's mouth, Kurt.
1: You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> 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 uh, Why we jump into the hard question. And so the, the first hard question is this. Um, when was the time that you made somebody out to be a villain in order to suit the narrative you needed to present? How do the stories we tell paint people in our lives, especially those different from us?
0: Oh, just because the state of America right now, and that's my country and where I'm living again, I say we get a perfect example of this in our political discourse. Um. There's there's really no middle ground, everyone is so exacting that Republican or Democrat are both painted as villains. Both are actually accusing the other party in the exact same act of stealing votes. And it's creating this environment around right now where we can't talk to each other. Um, how you vote is saying whether you can be in relationship or not, even though it's very important. And we start telling stories after story that unfortunately have showed um, a lot of misinformation and gaslighting happening that we're not even telling stories about actual events. Um, I've had people with videos are two years old because first happened saying, "Did you see this? This just happened." Like, no, 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 no. Um, And so we can't have any good dialogue right now because we're so scared um, of some part of America not being the true part of America um, that I've been told to leave my country because I don't represent the citizens anymore. And it's one of those that's like me who lived 30 years in the country out of the 37 I've been alive, was told I'm not American enough anymore because right now all we can see is um, the stories we tell to villainize and say that the problems we have right now are
1: somebody else. So, but to be fair though, bro, if you've given the opportunity to leave America and come back to Canada, you would probably do it at a heartbeat. So I'm just saying, put it, like, they're not that wrong.
0: <laughs> well, they're wrong that I hate my country. Not that I want, you know, my zip code to be weird, split and have letters in it. Just in case whoever listens to this doesn't know, Canada
1: puts letters in their zip codes, which is still weird to me. Um, In Canada, we don't have zip codes, homie. We got postal codes because it actually has to do with like posting things like in the mail. I'm just saying. So zip codes. Yeah. Okay. Explain zip code to me in relation to the postal system. How does that even make sense? It zips the letter to you faster all right see it's about um, speed and, this and why efficiency Amer- son and this is why america like keep america great again <laughs> <laughs> just joking i love america i love americans uh americans just don't always love me but it's all great. <laughs> so <laughs> kurt how about you man uh any thoughts on that question
2: oh man Specifically right now, I'm laughing too hard at you guys talking about zip codes. Um, (laughs) I'm trying to think of a specific one. Nothing really comes to mind right now, but I know I do it. Um, I guess a lot of it would be for me. I run my own business. And very often when I'm telling stories of customers, the good ones are great. And the not so good ones are, are not so great sometimes. But... Yeah. Sometimes when you when you get a customer who, who doesn't agree with what you've done, who's not happy with your services, not for whatever reason, is just not happy. Um, in retelling the story, it's really easy to skip over the parts where you really, really screwed things up and had you made a better decision, it might've been a different transaction um, and just make it, you know, entirely the customer's fault. He just doesn't get it. He just doesn't understand. He's just not willing to open his wallet. Um, you know, whatever the, you know, insert, Accusation here. Um, but yeah, you try to paint yourself as having done everything you possibly could to make this guy happy, and he just decided to not be happy. And uh, yeah, I'm not sure why we do it that way. It just happens, I guess. So, but yeah, it's a real call to kind of look at some of those stories and you know, own up saying, hey, look, yeah, you know what? I gave the guy a car back and around like a piece of junk, and then he's unhappy. Well, whose fault is that? That's me. It's not the other guys. So.
1: Yeah. That's good. That's good, man. Um, I know for my, myself, just trying to think through this question, like, like th- these kind of questions trigger so many different thoughts. I, I never quite know where to land on it. And so part of me is like, yeah, I should talk about like American politics stuff, like the way Glenn is. Or I should talk about uh, ex-girlfriends or something like that because that's what's also coming to mind. But nonetheless, <laughs> um <laughs> you know all the people that need to be villains right um but i think just in a very general sense though for me if if i'm really honest is anybody truthfully who disagrees with me on, on on the front side like like without my without me having a lot of time to reflect um i tend to paint them with a pretty villainous brush right like if you you know you know what i mean like i, I like i can think of like, like like a bunch of different experiences where somebody quote unquote told me what to do or told me what i was doing wasn't the correct thing or something like that and not, not like my response wasn't like i disagree with you and i think this is actually correct or i think da, da 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 was i started telling the story to other people and be like yo did you hear what homeboy said that guy is you know five screws short of a whole set and da, 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 da. and like you know everything be- <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, Ikea bookshelves, man. You can't um, fix the whole bookshelf if you're missing some of the screws. That's what I was thinking in my head.
0: Bro, I just want to let you know, for all the sayings you have readily accessible, like a, you know, a few pieces of chicken short of a picnic, a few screws loose, a few fries short of a Happy Meal, like all things that other people would know. You had to go and make your own saying.
1: I am an Enneagram 4, homie. Come on now. Yeah, you special, bro. You special. Anyways, don't be offended. <laughs> <laughs> but but nonetheless, but nonetheless, um, I think, like, like for me, I, I think just, like, sticking to that generalization right there, um, it, it'd be very easy for me to now point to Glenn and be like, well, see, Glenn is just American. That's why he speaks like that. He can't help it. And all of a sudden, the villainous brush comes out. Versus being like, nah, man, he just didn't like my my choice of a, a an analogy, um, <laughs> and, and that's why he responded that way, right? So it, it, you know what I mean? Like, there's there's not a lot of there's not a lot of grace in the in the mix of it for for me at least, and I th- I think that's the part where like you know especially those who are different than us part comes into play is. Like, there's so much commonality in this world like reality is it's like like there's only like varying degrees of difference between all of us in, in in some sense but then like the things that are different seem so radical and foreign that we have no idea how to extend grace and compassion and even like humanize like, like like not, not even humanize that's the wrong language like like uh honor the humanity of the of, of, of the people who actually have so much in common with us you know, you know what i mean like we see the world as, as, as either like you are exactly like me or you're completely foreign to me versus learning to see the world as common ground in a sense, right? So those are some thoughts for me.
2: Yeah. Well, I and mean, I think sometimes it happens so easily. One of the things that happened as I was looking into this story, um, one of the first articles I read kind of related to it, guy giving the background on kind of the, the cultural setting of what was going on. And one of the first lines I read was, the Moabites were descendants of an incestuous relationship. And it was subtle. It was one little sentence, and then it just moved on to talking about this whole story. But that little line really stuck with me going, wow, like in the first sentence of your article, you've made the Mo- Moabites, the descendants of an incestuous relationship, insinuating that that's what they do, right? Like the insinuation was there, this, they, and they still practice it. They didn't say it, but the insinuation was still there. Um, And it's so easy when we're telling a story. It's a a little word here, it's a voice and fluctuation there. And, you know, it's so easy to do it that I think half the time we don't even realize it, right? The Moabites and the Israelites, I'm pretty sure that when you really dug into their lives, they probably weren't, like you said, they weren't really different. You know, they were all just people trying to get along.
0: And as you point out, which I think is something super valuable, so I want to lean into it a little bit is often when we see these things and we think about vilifying somebody we go to the extremes Um, and so it becomes something as blatant like what carl did and he goes oh well when glenn spoke um, i could paint with a broad brush but he he made a little cartoonish a a little bit gregarious to illustrate a point but that's often where we go in our heads when we think of vilifying rather than what you just pointed out it was a throwaway line that was a Prepositional phrasing in the beginning to say, oh, I'm going to introduce the people. Did you know they're incestuous? Anyway, it's not even a big deal. Let's move on with the story. But it's there. It's it's almost like a psychological prime to predispose you to have a certain response towards people. Like when someone says, oh, I'm about to introduce you to someone, but just know um, they're a shady businessman. And so any innocent mistake, You're like, oh, they meant to rip me off the two cents. Like, do you care about two cents? Like, no. Like, but now I do because you set me up to start looking for that. And I think that's the most um, pernicious part of villainization is that it's a subtle act. It's always a soft touch. It's just so you know, just in case you didn't understand, I'm just trying to help you out. You know there's this one time i had a bad experience with somebody that was closely related to this kind of group and it becomes that distant 20 years ago but i'm sure all people from that group now represent that today
1: yeah and, uh, glenn i think that's a great point what you what you're saying there because like even like today it's, it's interesting that um I, like I, it was just a brief conversation with somebody and um like 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 the fact that I'm a christian popped up right and like I, you could just see it instantly on their face it's like and it's like the, right, <laughs> and, 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 like oh, for, I'm, we're on a podcast, so you can't see what I did, but my eyes just bulged out of. Wait, my head. Ahead, I can help
0: you. And the narrator's <laughs> voice came in. Carl's making giant eyes at the screen. Exactly. He is shocked.
1: Yeah, and the, that broad brush kind of notion that that stereotype, we begin to stereotype, and so everybody, like I had, I had a bad encounter with with Christians. Um, I'm sorry that you had a bad encounter, probably with a lot of Christians, but uh, in the in the mix of it. There, there is there is difference, and there is actually something um, valuable and redeemable and it's truthfully reflective of the image of God in, in every person that we encounter. How do I put it, man? Um, it, it sounds, For me, it sounds a little bit weird for me to be pitching grace for Christians because they've been acting like jerks. It feels a little bit weird to pitch that. But at the same time, majority of Christians that I do know, especially folks that they themselves have walked away from their faith um, They've had those bad experiences.
0: Well, no, like where I was hearing you go, bro, was to create that space to where we, we can name wrongs done, but we create space for reconciliation. So it's not the not all Christians kind of line, not all men kind of line, but it gives each person the privilege of telling their story so that they can have change. Because we freeze in other people's stories,
1: when they don't get to add any more lines to it. So the next question is this, have you ever had an experience that expanded your vision of God? How do
2: you let God out of the boxes that are so easy to create? I think one of the clearest, like even the face type most for me, we went down to Mexico a number of years ago, this was with our church. Um, basically what we were there for, some of us guys went down with some construction skills, lady was working down there in an the orphanage. And so the plan basically was few of us get her house into a living condition because it was pretty bad. Um, and some of the people would work with the kids and the neighborhood, doing like little, you know, VBS type stuff with them. And, uh, well, we got down there and there was another group that was in town as well doing more music types of stuff. So we get down there first night, we're in a service bands playing. Um, and I'm just kind of kicking back on, you know, it's nice and warm. It's kind of a cool vibe going on. And it was another one of those weird moments where it was pretty much audible. Like I went down thinking, okay, you know, we're going to be ministering to these people. We're going to show them what Christianity's like. We're going to demonstrate Jesus to them and that sort of stuff. And it was almost an audible voice that said, you know what, Kurt, you're going to shut up this week. You're not going to say a thing. Um, you know, you're here to learn, you're not here to teach. And it was just, a, it was not those really, really odd evenings, but it stuck with me as well. I, and as I went through the week, I really made that commitment where I went, okay, you know what? I'm going to be here to learn, not to teach. And I saw so many things happen that weren't what I would have done. They were done differently, they were done other ways. Um, but it was pretty clear that God was in that place. It was just an absolutely amazing week. And laying some tiles and then fixing up a, a little bit, I really didn't do it. Um, but I came out of there. I, I think I came away from there a different person. Um, like I really did learn a lot about God that week.
0: Now, that's always beautiful when you get to impact. Because um, often that I say that would reflect that when we talk about God and talk about Jesus, um, we assume he's at the very least North American. Uh, probably from English descent. Um, and when we do this, so when we go to another culture, we're like, oh, we're bringing God to this culture. We're going to show them. I know that really happened for me because I was at the ripe old age of 19. So, of course, like I had it all put together, like pretty solidly. And I was going to be a missionary and then travel to a war zone and teach people about God, life, beauty, and compassion. And when we we get there, to teach, you know, the person who said give up your life and follow me I got to be around people who gave up everything to help and they told us like when you enter into somebody's house, be careful how much you eat and you know being an American you set out food if you have it. if you don't you don't. Um, it's not expected but they said no because their their view in this area of the guest is so honored um, you're literally eating the food their children will have for snacks. So I said you must eat a little bit, otherwise you you will make them believe that you don't think they're worthy to serve you. But just know the generosity comes from their children. and it's it's those moments of extended grace and compassion that like blew my mind like, what are we doing here? why Why is a nineteen year old being flown four thousand miles to tell people about something that I have so much to learn on since you're showing me generosity and compassion to the level I've never known it?
1: That's good, man. It's a powerful story, man. Um, I think just, just, I'm going to just try to share a really quick story just because of time, Um, just reflecting on on both what you guys are saying. And I think like something that for me, I kind of sold the same theme or the same thread is from my time when I was in Hawaii and we started, we we were part of this community called the the parking spot. And one of the things that we did was once a month, we would would basically hold uh, like a, Outreach type thing in, in this park, uh, the park, and there was a homeless encampment around it. And when we first showed up, our our jo- our goal was like, okay, we're gonna we're we're gonna serve these people, we're gonna bless them, like we're, it's gonna be awesome. We're gonna be awesome, right? And um, our first time that we set up there, uh, we will call the police. Uh, the police walked up and said, hey, it's illegal to feed people. Um, you can't you can't feed people. You can't set up the table like this and stuff like that. And I'm, I'm going to go away and uh, I'm going to come back in like 10 minutes. And if you guys haven't, like if you guys haven't torn down, then uh, I'm gonna, we're going to confiscate all the stuff. And one, well, first I'll say side note, I'll say it's crazy that um, in, a, in a place like Honolulu where there's such a high homeless population, it's illegal to actually feed homeless people. Like that's insane to me, right? Like like being homeless is, 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 has become illegal. But that's a side note anyways, tangent from my short story turning into a long story. Was because of that, though. What it did was it forced us to, like, on, on the spot, like, we just made this, okay, like, we're not, we're not, we're not packing up, we're not going away. Um, so we, we, we began to throw like blankets and we had some chairs with us and we began to put things in circles and we put the tables out instead of having them like soup lineups kind of thing like that. We actually set like like plates all over them and have people come sit down at the tables and things like that. And so when the cop said the cop came back to him and said, like, hey, I told you guys to get out of here. Um, I'm going to confiscate yourself. I'm like, we're allowed to have a picnic in the park, though, right? He's the guy's like, yeah, I'm like, OK, cool. This is just a picnic with our friends. I made a whole lot of new friends today and and the conference kind of look you know gives you that look like oh you guys are freaking annoying the hell out of me right now But I can't, i'm not going to do anything whatever um but that but what that did was it, it began to actually shift the way that we like the way we had to interact in that park and so we, we couldn't quote unquote do an outreach we had to do a picnic in the park with our friends and because we approached it as a picnic in a park with our friends the homeless people weren't an outreach for us they were actually friends that we made like the people that were in that community became not just someone that we served but people who participated in the whole community fun- community communal function and so it wasn't just on that one like once a month that we went to the park but they would actually begin to participate with us on, on the other times when we were doing things as well um, but also at the point where again the, the idea of participation was like it was crazy because they would show up with they would show up with food to give away as well and it's like well I know you don't really have much and in my mind it's like well because I have more than I think I have more than you therefore I'm the person that's supposed to be giving, and again it's power dynamics kind of stuff and I think for me at least was that whole notion of generosity being displayed by the people that I, th- I thought should actually be the people to hold on to stuff the most, um, really really kind of flipped the whole power dynamic thing on its head where we, we have to learn how to be present and participate in, the kind of, in, in whatever the community looks like in a sense, but allow people to fully participate and allow ourselves to fully, be fully participants as well. Like, like we're not gatekeepers, we're not power brokers. We, we, are, we are guests at the table just like everybody else. And so that's that uh, like that was something that like that story showed me about the whole power dynamic and the way I think God works within community anyways.
0: Oh no, just um you're reminding me of a statement from uh, Frank Tipper which he's he said the only way you can experience neighboring is by being the man in the ditch who needs to be neighbor. about the receiving of hospitality that teaches you how to neighbor. Um, he said it's not just identifying, saying, I see the I see this person giving, it's being able to receive. Sure. And that's how you learn. Because he said humanity was not born with an innate thing to give. We were born with a need to love. And by being loved, we learn how to give. And what you what just kept echoing my head as you're telling that story is another point of vilifying, of othering, of distancing, is not letting somebody tell their story by saying that I own your story in such a way. That you can't give to me, only I can give to you. You can't bring something of value; you can only receive. So it's not a it's not a blessing. It's not a neighboring. It's almost a colonization of the people's experience to say you are my poverty to take care of. Um, and in that experience of them bringing, you actually experience what it was to see them as neighbor. Yeah. Not in you bringing food, but you accepting food, you suddenly saw them
1: as neighbor. That's, that's, yeah, that's a great point, man. And that's a beautiful quote as well. So what well, you said, Frank Tipper, you said? Oh, computer sitting on the book.
0: Yeah, Frank Tupper, A Scandalous Providence, The Jesus Story
1: of the Compassion of God. But let's, let's, let's jump into the hands question, man. Um, so the hands question is this. The story of Balaam and Heaven's Worst Assassin shows us that God can and will speak to and through people outside of our comfort zone. How can we posture ourselves to be open to listening for God in those unexpected places?
0: I'd say there's been a theme running um, throughout this podcast, which is how we witness God in the unforeseeable places is by letting other people have control of their story, be able to tell us where they've experienced God, the virtues they've had, the good things they've done, and not create in othering, a distancing, a vilification of people who do not look, act, or think like us, but that we get to learn to say, um, because I saw generosity, compassion, um, like Paul said in Galatians, that the fruit of the Spirit ours, everywhere we see these fruits, we can also say we see God, where there's love, joy, peace, compassion, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control, we can say, yes, God is here. And we can only experience that as we let somebody else tell their own story. And like from your last thing um, and receiving gifts from the other person that opening yourself up to be neighbor is to receive the compassionate response of somebody that in those ways we'll actually be shocked where God shows up because we'll get to actually experience it within a living, breathing life and human.
2: Yeah. I think I'm with Glenn on that one too, where Looking for instead of looking for, you know, a profession of faith or whatever term you want to attach to it, um, when you look at Galatians five, you know, fruits of the spirit—love, joy, peace, gentleness. To me, those those are markers not only of individual people, but I think when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven, these are markers of what the kingdom of heaven looks like. And anywhere we see these things going on, you know, you're part of the kingdom. Um, So for me, it's been a case of looking a lot less at, you know, the statement of faith that's sort of associated with any organization or with the person and a lot more about looking at, you know, what's happening in their, in their lives, what's happening in their work. Um, and if you're seeing these characteristics manifest themselves, you know, God's there somewhere. Um, you know, they may not see it, they may not acknowledge it, but you know, he's there. And, uh, you know, looking for that, and it's it's you'll you'll start to open up to a lot of new possibilities and a lot of new pictures um, of God doing His thing. You might not have looked
0: before. I think you point out something really, uh, really good that kind of like links to Carl's story, is when he first went to bring food down as part of the parking spot. He was doing a charitable act because you could have the litmus test of saying, um, "Do you have enough money? Are you the right kind of person?" Have you bathed quick enough? Okay, then obviously we are the right people here to serve you as opposed to what you said as you notice things about people, which is what the next part of Carl's story is when they sit across the table from you as um, people sharing the table, not being served at the table, um, people participating in the table, not a charity at the table. Like their presence was honored as they participated. Um, it invites us to something a little bit more difficult. It means I can't just have an easy set of questions to say you're good or bad. I have to sit at the table with you for
1: a while. Yeah, that's good, man. And I, I think I that's yeah, and I think that's such a great point that you bring up, Glenn, because I think that's that. Like I, for me, at least, that's the call of Christ is is to be present, right? And and a lot of us we have come up in a version of faith that said the call of Christ is to believe the right thing or is to, you know, you know you know what I mean? And, and, and if the call of Christ is to be present, when we're present, it's, only, it's the only time that we actually slow down enough to be actually able to see the things that like, that you guys are talking about, to be able to see the fruit of the spirit, to be able to see like love and joy and peace. and These things actually manifest. If it's just about believing the right things, I can say, I believe in love. I believe in joy. I believe in, you know, you know, peace, but, if I'm not slowing down enough, you're never going to see it in my life. You're never going to be, or I'm never going to see it in your life either, right? Like we just believe, we just believe it's a good thing, right? Um, And what you guys are talking about, maybe think about um, this quote from Richard Rohr that's kind of stuck with me. It was in a video, it was just a video on YouTube that I saw of him speaking. But he said that it's really interesting that when we think of the great creeds of our faith, so that's the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Like he's like literally 90% of the church reads those two, one of those two creeds every Sunday in the in the church, right? And neither one of those creeds mention anything about love. So when we make these great affirmations that, that are like truthfully 18, roughly 1800 years old and older, or, and, and a little bit, and a little bit newer, like the Nicene Creed is what 1600 years roughly. But nonetheless, <clears throat> these things say so much about the things that we believe in but not about the things that are actually fruit of being present in community with one another. And and I and I and I feel like 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 right there is the posturing part is slowing down, being present, being attuned to what's actually around us, long enough that we can actually see the fruit of the spirit being present. That we can actually see, like God is in this place and I did not know it. You know what I mean? Kind of moments.
0: Oh, bro! I was just when you're telling that. It, it was beautiful, it was poetic, but all I could see was people, some, like, bougie people walking down the street with people hungry. It's like, no, I believe in eating, and they keep walking by. <laughs> it's like, I believe in nutrition. Don't even worry about it. We're on the same page here. Like, I believe in my food, so I'm going to get some. <laughs> and they just keep going.
2: <laughs> What about you? Do you believe in housing? Good yeah, for you. Sure, man. So, so speaking of food, one of the coolest stories for me along this vein about Jesus is when Jesus is feeding 5,000 people with the you know four loaves and two fishes or whatever the number was. But the basic story goes Jesus is teaching on one side of the lake and he's getting worn out. They've been going for a while. So he and his disciples hop in the boat and they go out across the lake. So what they do is they go from this side of the lake to that side of the lake. The thing is when they get there, all the people who had been on this side of the lake are already waiting for them over there. And it struck me as going, okay, so how do they get there? What's quicker, roll across the lake or walk around it? I'm assuming roll across the lake is a lot quicker. So what would Jesus and his disciples do it? Like they, I can only imagine they stopped in the middle of the lake for, you know, maybe a nap or maybe they're just hanging out and who knows, but it took them a long time to get across this lake. Well, to get across there, and it becomes clear, okay, the people are hungry. What are we going to do? The disciples find this kid with, with the fish and the loaves. Well, there's 5,000 people there. So Jesus does this amazing miracle of splitting up the bread and the fish and feeding 5,000 people with a, with a young boy's lunch. But the funny thing is, if it was about the miracle, if he's powerful enough to do that, he would have been powerful enough to say to everybody, okay, you know what, you guys are no longer hungry, all the nutrition you need, boom, you're done. You know, in 30 seconds, and he's back to teaching again. Instead of what he does, he takes his kid's lunch and he meticulously breaks out for 5,000 people spreading this out. It must have taken hours and hours to distribute this food. So the thought occurred to me going, well, if what we're all about is teaching the right stuff, it would have been way more efficient for him, one, to not bother going across the lake. He could have done the same miracle on the first side. Um, But to, to go out there and, and say, okay, you know what? You're all fed. You're good. And here's what I have to tell you and go about teaching some more and getting them more head knowledge. But instead he takes the time to spend with his disciples and with those around him to spend the time to feed 5,000 people by hand, breaking off pieces of bread and fish. And it became pretty clear to me that this is way more about, like what we've been talking about, it's way more about community. It's way more about hanging out with people than it is giving them the next brilliant insight. And, uh, Yeah, it was just kind of a a neat sideline to this. Well, probably as I see it now, the main part of the story is Jesus took the time to just hang out. It wasn't all about looking for the most efficient path. So it's kind of a neat little tidbit in there. I never thought about that aspect of the story,
0: that since he is the only one named breaking the loaf, he basically plated 5,000 plates, which means... Plus women and children, bro. Plus women and children. Nah, they don't count. We're in the ancient Near East right now. They don't count. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But it's just, even at 5,000, bro, I was like, I'm sorry. Let's say Jesus was a really, really fast mover. So 30 seconds a plate. That means 41 hours and everyone got something.
1: And there were and there was leftovers, man. And there was leftovers.
0: <laughs> yeah. And like that when what I love about that story in the same vein is rather than being the miraculous, because often we want the miraculous to come from outside of us, to come from something besides us, to be the superimposed structure we can suffocate people with. It came from the provisions within the community, yes. By the amplification of the touch of Christ. But it was the young man's lunch. And it came from something already present, not a creation out of nothing, not this God coming down through the clouds and
1: performing magic. It was, you know, from within the community. <laughs> Sorry, man. I just had a picture of like, you know, like kind of um the, the picture of like, uh, the, the hand of God, like in the assisting Chapel, but reaching down with a, like a, like a subway sandwich Oh. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it
2: was quiz notes.
0: It, it was in a Noah's Ark lunchbox. He dropped it down like that. Like, What's in this ark? <laughs>
1: food for everyone. Well, technically, in the first arc, there was also food for everyone. <laughs> Barbecue, right? <laughs> takes longer. Bro, it takes longer.
0: But yeah, I just like that. ask you pointing to the, the time. Commitment that we tend to want to avoid because the only thing we think about is can you say, like you said from Richard Rohr, can you tell me that you agree with the Nicene Creed? Um, can you tell me you believe with this random assortment of text from the scriptures? Like if you can, cool. And that also means the worldview want, we want you to have, which isn't about the scriptures. It's usually about finding the modern age in the scriptures. Um, and we have these other trappings we want to give to you with it. And we just pointed out is, yeah, you know, it would be awesome if we all sat for a while in a valley distributing the food that was amplified by God, but provided by the people. Yeah. Okay. That 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 move from the provided with the incarnational experience of humanity getting amplified by God with us
1: um, creates the world we can step into. That's awesome, man. I think that's a great place for us to, to kind of bring it to a, to, to a wrap but normally we would try to like run a summary of what we talked about for, for today but i think i i think it might even be we, we did this last time and i think it, it actually for me yielded a pretty interesting result is that in one sentence if you had to summarize what this conversation was about today what would that what would it be like so like like one sentence to summarize the conversation and so glenn why don't, why don't you go first uh kurt if you want to go next and i can close this down um for me, uh, one sentence summary of today would be
0: villains turn into friends as we give them the freedom to define their
2: experience and join us at the table. That's good. I think for me probably the I guess the simplest way to summarize it, if I can say this in church, stop being so friggin judgmental. Yeah. No, that's good.
1: That's good. <laughs> um I would say for, for me is it's probably uh more dinner parties uh more dinner parties less cursing sessions <laughs> you know what i mean so uh if i if i'm gonna show up on the block dinner party don't need to curse nobody out you know what i'm saying And right now pick, just side note, i'm pick, right, as i'm saying that there's a certain person a person that i grew up with they could curse people out like nobody's business so like if you got in her way you said the wrong thing that's what i'm picturing right now so like balek wanted to hire her and he got bailam instead <laughs>
2: I got a yellow card yeah. That was way more than one sentence. <laughs>
1: it was, it was a side note. I, I apologize. <laughs> it, Cause it, when I said it, it popped in my head as I said it. And then I had to share the story because I felt the story was worth sharing with everybody. It's my See, narcissism. <laughs> like, honestly,
0: um, I only have this line because you encouraged me to read Malcolm X's biography. Um, but ever since that book with his line that profanity is like salt a little bit seasons the food, too much of it ruins it. It makes you look like a fool. I I think that is the greatest rule of profanity. Yes, a little bit, it adds some spice. Throw in too many F-bombs and we just ruined the stew. So we want to thank everyone for joining us in this conversation as we got to wrestle with the implications of Balaam and his donkey. We ask that if this has been something that's helped you wrestle or process that go to www.fost.church and you can see ways to connect, to join in and to be a part of some of the development and discussions as we go.